Sports are back, and if you're like me, you're living and dying with your favorite team. Right now, I'm dying with the Penguins, but just because I am dying with my team doesn't mean that I'm missing the great coverage that is being provided by people like Josh Yoey and Sean Gentile over at The Athletic. You can't miss the exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. You subscribe now and save. You sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, you can receive 40% off of an annual subscription. Sports are back. That means you're not going to want to miss the breaking stories on your favorite teams. So go to theathletic.com slash game theory for 40% off of an annual subscription. We hope to see you there, even if you're a Penguins fan and you're like me and uh, just, just struggling right now with the way things are going. Now it's time to get to Fred Katz, and we're going to talk about the NBA's restart, specifically the teams in the Western Conference that are chasing uh, the top seven seeds right now. So uh, looking forward to that conversation now, but first let's uh, hit that little athletic sound bug. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. There's no interview today with draft prospects because there's way too much going on across the NBA. I didn't want to leave you guys with another hour and 45-minute podcast because that's what I feel like I've been doing recently. And we all, we all have limited time here, right? I get that. So... Just about an hour today, we're going to talk about the NBA's bubble restart with Fred Katz over at The Athletic. Fred writes about the Wizards, but Fred knows fucking basketball, guys. He just knows it all. Fred, good friend of the program. You've been here before. How you doing, man? I'm great. I'm wonderful. I'm just I'm sitting here watching. I like to say I, I think about the Wizards more than any person in the world who doesn't actually work for the Wizards. So... It's good to come over here and think about something other than the Wizards. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you want to give like a thirty second spiel on the Wizards, just about Isaac Bonga? <laughs> How first of all, um, we want the Isak Bonga spiel. I I don't know if I can contain an Isak Bonga spiel to thirty seconds. Is it Isak? That's a thing. Yeah, yeah. He goes by Isak now. Okay. Cool. I'm in. Whatever you want to be called, Isak, I'm in. I'm yeah, he's Isak. he's a very he's a very amenable and kind of soft spoken, smiley guy. And so people started calling him Isak because that's the German pronunciation. So a group of reporters, me and and a couple other reporters, kind of went up to him before a game, and we were like, "Do you want to go by Isaac or do you want to go by Isak?" Because as a reporter, you never want to call somebody their non preferred name, and it makes no difference to you. You just want to make sure you call them the right name. He had gone by Isaac his whole first time, and, and I guess the name is Isak, and he says, you know, I don't really care, like in Germany, they call me Isak, and, and here people just see the name, and it's spelled like Isaac, so they just, they say Isaac, and I don't really care. And we're like, but what do you prefer? He said, eh, it doesn't make a difference, and we're like, so, one of them is your name, ma'am. Like, he's so, he's so easygoing, he just wouldn't tell us as if it's going to offend me that I've been pronouncing his name wrong the whole time, you know? And I'm like, no, man, I, we want to we know. And so Chris Miller, Wizards sideline reporter, had the most brilliant way to get him to say it. Chris, Chris is there in the conversation. And Chris says, you know what? What's your mama call you? And, she say, and he says, uh, she calls me Isak. And he says, your mama calls you Isak? I'm going to call you Isak. And so now we all, and so now it's Isak amongst, amongst the public. And I think we've pushed Isak well enough. There's your Isak Bonga spiel, which was not contained to 30 seconds. 
I'm in. I, I'm in on calling him Isak Bonga now. That is his name. We should refer to him in the proper context. But in general, this podcast is going to be discussing the Western Conference of teams in the NBA. Because you and I were talking about this before we started recording, and I'm kind of struggling with the Eastern Conference right now in terms of caring. Like, I've really enjoyed watching the Raptors because they have such great continuity. Uh, you know, the Bucks, I guess, are somewhat compelling just because they seem to be figuring things out in a pretty substantial way. But there's just so much less to play for. In the East, the eight teams are known already. I'm just struggling to come up with compelling reasons that these games matter nearly as much as they do in the West. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also that, like, in the West, the teams that we don't completely have our total grasp on, we don't have our total grasp on because they're playing well. Like, like yeah, Dallas is – I would I would bet a lot that Dallas is, is going to end up seventh, but – Dallas is this incredibly high-powered offensive team that's young, and and they have outplayed what they could have been this year. The Thunder have outplayed what they could have been this year. Utah is, you know, aside from maybe Mike Conley having a down year, Utah is a good team that plays solid basketball. The Nuggets are a good team that plays solid basketball. The Clippers are immensely talented. Lakers are immensely talented, although they haven't been great in the bubble. Like, for the most part, these are good teams playing like good teams. And then in the East, the teams that you don't really know are like Philly, which is the opposite situation. So it's just kind of fr- it's frustrating to watch Philly. You know, it's not it's not yeah. like Philly you don't really know because they have this other gear and they haven't hit it for a reason that is that is more wholesome than like they just can't figure out a way to put it together, you know, which is always frustrating to watch with the team. I, I will say the Philly thing remains tremendously compelling to me just because it's just a total nightmare every time they take the court. Like you watched them yesterday against the Wizards. Like, this team is such a disaster in so many ways in terms of continuity, togetherness, like, in terms of the way they play. Like, I'm sure they like each other. But, like, it's such a clusterfuck in Philadelphia that that part of it is compelling because we know they have talent, but they just can't pull it together. But, like, I'm almost at the point now where it's just like, this team is who it is. Like, they have not come to the bubble in a tangibly different manner than how they, uh, you know, ended the season with all of the continuity-based disasters. So uh, it's hard for me to get to the point where I'm willing to bet on Philly. Like, I I went a DFS Philly-heavy lineup yesterday, and I was just like, okay, yeah, this is a this is a mistake. Like, what am I? I hate I hate nightmares, though. I hate I hate nightmares. I hate nightmares. I like I like positivity in my sports. I like I like watching a, a joyous twenty two year old or twenty one year old run an unbelievable offense in Dallas or or I like two incredible wings piecing together an amazing defensive team in LA or or whatever. Like like those things to me are are more fun than just watching a team and being like what the hell and just being frustrated all the time. That's why I don't like scare I don't like horror movies. I don't I don't need I don't I don't need extra anxiety in my life. Like I'm I'm good with all the all the positive things that come from sports. So I I I don't I don't even find it compelling like a situation like like Philly. I just I I find it I guess I find it interesting from a basketball perspective with like right. the Horford and and Embiid fit and all that kind of stuff, but just seeing a team not reach the levels that it could. I'm like, "Come on, guys. It just stresses me out." Uh, let's 
let's move to that West because you brought up LA and I, I do want that to be the focal point here because the race for the two and the three and the four all the way down to the seven seeds in the West, th- that's actually going to play a very real tangible role in terms of who is going to win the NBA title. And there's still a lot to play for with five, four games left, depending on uh, what the team has played so far. So before we even get there, though, I want to talk about the Lakers because it seems like people are melting down a little bit about the Lakers. Does that feel like that's the case to you? Like they lost last night to Oklahoma City and they're really struggling offensively, although I'm not totally convinced they're actually struggling offensively based off of some of the numbers. Where, where do you fall on the, how the Lakers are playing right now? I think they've played very poorly, and I'm not necessarily worried about it yet. Uh, I Offensively, they're just missing a lot of open shots. Like, you run yeah. through the numbers, and they're missing a lot of open shots. And, like, these are guys, and it's not like it's it's the wrong guys missing open shots. They're just missing open shots, and... The bubble is kind of having this similar phenomenon that we have at the beginning of the season, where everybody's so excited about the Suns because they're 3-0 and in the bubble. But if the Suns won three consecutive games in January, in the middle of a normal 82-game season, they those games some of those games might not even make SportsCenter because they wouldn't have enough time, right? Like, we wouldn't be thinking about it. And now we say the Suns have made some kind of leap. And don't don't get me wrong, I like Phoenix's, Phoenix's pieces. I th- I think Aiton is gets too much crap because he was drafted ahead of Doncic. I think Aiton is really freaking good. And Booker is obviously really good. And I like their pieces. I like their young pieces. Like, they're, they have something there. Don't get me wrong. And after four and a half months off, they might actually be a little bit better. But I'm just really prone to overreacting three or four games from something that we know is true. And what we know is true is that the Lakers are really, really good. We have enough games to see that even after the bubble, or even even coming into the bubble, the Lakers are really, really good. And it it doesn't freak me out that they've missed open shots in four games when they've played some really good teams, you know? Like, the Thunder are really good. They're really good. Um, and, And if you're missing open shots, it just makes me think, like, okay, let's see what happens over a larger sample than just four games. No, I'm with you. I think that it was either Kevin Pelton or Seth Partnow, uh, our colleague at The Athletic, who tweeted out last night that the Lakers are fifth in terms of like expected field goal percentage or expected effective field goal percentage in the bubble so far, and they're like 25th or uh, not 25th. They were like 21st or something like that in terms of actual field goal effective field goal percentage uh, in the bubble, and it's just like. There are open shots that are not falling, and those are going to fall at some point. Now, Oklahoma City, I think, did a really interesting thing last night where they just, like, totally walled off every single LeBron James drive and forced guys to try and make open shots, and that didn't happen, right? Uh, They just absolutely did not make those shots. So, on some level, uh, I think that that's going to be how defenses play the Lakers, And it's interesting to see an opposing team use that strategy and utilize it to the level of success that Oklahoma City did in winning by 19 points last night. But it also doesn't necessarily raise the alarm bells for me either because the Lakers offense is generating 
positive opportunities, they're just not converting. And as long as they're generating positive opportunities, I feel pretty good that those are going to fall at some point. Right. And I don't see that much different in terms of their process. Do you? Not really. No, I don't. Um, I mean, Anthony Davis has probably been a bit more hit or miss in terms of his aggressiveness is maybe the way to put it. Like, I think he's playing engaged, but I don't think he's been as aggressive in terms of seeking his shot uh, as we've seen him play previously. Uh, You know, Danny Green, though, goes two for seven from three. Um, You know, Quinn Cook, J.R. Smith, Dion Waiters, Alex Caruso combined to go 0 for 11 from three, right? Contavious uh, Caldwell Pope goes one for three. Davis and James go zero for eight from three. Right? Like I really think it's just a matter of, okay, the Lakers shot five of thirty-seven from three last night. Let's just like not, let's not have a total meltdown about this. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you. See, we we just have these these biases of blowing up these these smaller samples, and I think they're fine. I mean, look, the roster is a little different, but it's not like. Rajon Rondo being there would all of a sudden, you know, increase their three-point shooting to an outrageous degree, right? I mean, these they're missing are are not if if the guy who Avery Bradley would otherwise be guarding was just pulverizing them every night, I'd be more concerned. You know, it's it's not it's not that they've lost a couple games. It's it's just I think you have to delve into how they're losing them and and see what's replicable, and and it just doesn't seem like these the amount of shots that they're missing is going to sustain. Now, now, if we're well, talking about the them, other thing too that I want to bring up, they've gotten really good Kyle Kuzma so far, and for as much as we talk about them missing shots, Kyle Kuzma is making shots, and over the course of his career, he hasn't really made shots. I actually think what I've seen of Kuzma is relatively sustainable because he's just taking open catch open catch and shoot threes. And he looks like he's kind of widened his base throughout his shot a little bit and is taking, uh, is leaping a little bit less and has much better balance and alignment throughout that shot entirely. So the fact that Kyle Kuzma seems to have made real substantial leaps as a shooter in regard to changing his mechanical prowess even, I think is another positive sign, even if the Lakers are not making shots. Kyle Kuzma is is honestly a super interesting player to me because his identity has changed so much from what it was two years ago. Like, remember two years ago when he couldn't guard anybody? Like, almost became an internet meme of, like, this guy can't guard? Kyle Kuzma's a, a pretty solid defensive player now. It shows... Okay. It sh- yeah, he's like shows, an average defender now. He's vastly improved from what he was two years ago. Yeah. He, he'll, he'll have... I mean, he was... He was a turnstile two years ago. Now he'll yeah. he'll man you up he'll man you up one on one. He he goes hard defensively. It's it's a great it's a great class in uh, how much culture t- and having teammates who are usually in the right place affects an individual's defense, right? Yeah, like, there's there's that. I will say you're 100 percent right. Kuzma is not a turnstile on the ball anymore, and he's like pretty switchable because he is really great body control and fluidity and uh, has pretty good feet. His his engagement off the ball and his rotational acuity off the ball is not super great still. Like, he's not always in the right spot rotationally in these, like, scramble situations. But it's still just, like, a dramatic improvement from where he was as a rookie and as a sophomore. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, it's it's amazing because this is actually a concept I do think about a lot regarding the Wizards, who are last in the league in defensive efficiency, where there's a team that uh, there are so many young players on that team, and you talk about scramble situations or even just general general simple help principles. Just all right, my my guy is is helping from the corner. Now I'm going to go help the helper. You know, any just the simplest things that you learn at low levels of basketball. If everyone is in the wrong place, well, then you're teaching your young guys to be in the wrong place. Well, and, and you you bring up like low levels of basketball. I don't even think it's that. Like NBA defense is so unlike any other level of defense because of the level of help that has to get played. Because you're going up against uh, so many ridiculous athletes in a floor that is so much more well-spaced than any other level like NBA help defense is one of the like hardest concepts I feel like in sports and it takes guys a while to get there typically no question and so much of it becomes habit and familiarity uh one of the reasons you see really young guys being really bad and and I think it's so much easier for a guy like Kuzma to become a little better at those kinds of things when he's in a situation where he's got Danny Green there is quite good at the habit and familiarity and guys like that who are around him where he's got Anthony Davis defending the back ends. I yep. think that makes things a lot easier. And Dwight Howard, who added the fabulous defensive season as well. I, I think we should define what, what define, what is the definition of being worried about the Lakers? Like is, is being worried about the Lakers? Oh man, they could get punched out in, in the first round by like a hot Portland team or is being worried about the Lakers, they might not beat the Clippers in the Western Conference Finals. So, like, like what's what's the definition of worried here? I do think that this Oklahoma City team, for instance, like as they showed last night, can cause them some problems. Uh, so, right now, Oklahoma City is in the five spot in the West, so they would play the Lakers in the second round of the playoffs. Uh, look, I like Portland. I think that people on this podcast know that this is a Dame Lillard positive podcast. Uh, Genuinely, I think my favorite player in the NBA right now. I don't know that I trust them to beat the Lakers in a seven-game series, so I, I would still take the Lakers and not even really think twice. Like I'd probably take the Lakers in five in such a series. Um, oh, I would. That, that's the, that's the conservative one. Yeah, and like I would still take the Lakers over the Thunder in a series, like no questions asked. But I do think that Oklahoma City, with the ridiculous closer that is Chris Paul. Shea Gilgis-Alexander has been really good in the bubble so far. Last night was his worst night, and he still was pretty effective. Like, he had 13-7-5, and and even though the shot wasn't falling, he was effective getting to the basket, drawing fouls, doing a lot of that stuff, uh, and was very effective defensively in that game as well. I watched that game this morning. Like, just the reads that he was making, the way that he used his length, I think was really, really interesting. Uh, You have Danilo Gallinari, who's obviously a really, really good shooter. Steven Adams, I think, looks great in the bubble so far. He looks even more athletic. Now he got the knee injury, uh, like the mini little, like Nick last night that I hope doesn't affect it, but he looks more mobile than we've seen him in two years. So, uh, between those guys and Lou Dort and, uh, Roberson. And once they get, uh, Terrence Ferguson back, like they have some real defensive identity in addition to having two guys that can go out and just constantly create their own shot. And Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis Alexander, like that team, worries me for the Lakers a little bit. Uh, if I think that's fair. The playoffs. I think that's fair. I, I, 
still think if I had to pick, I would still pick uh, an all LA, an all LA Western Conference Finals. But and I OKC would too, is, by the way, like I, I want to be clear about that. I absolutely would too. I'm just saying, like the Lakers have shown enough questions, let's say, to where I think that there are going to be other teams that are going to cause them some issues, even if they're not necessarily going to beat them. Yeah, I mean that OKC closing lineup is insanity. People talk about how good Chris Paul has been in clutch time this year. I put him second team All-NBA in part because of how good he was in the clutch. But, man, that whole closing lineup, that three-point guard lineup they play with Gallinari and Adams, that is by far the best high-used lineup in the league based on net rating. They're outscoring guys by 30 points per 100, those five guys. It is insane. And it's not like Billy Donovan is is using them only in matchup situations or – no. We're only in sparse situations or situations that are prone to blow them out. It's like, no, that, that's what he closes with. And they just kill teams. Uh, it's crazy, the chemistry they have with those three point guards and, and Gallinari and Adams. And uh, that team that team can do some stuff. Like, I don't know. It's really funny how much OKC's identity has changed with the players. Because when I covered that team, when Russ was there, they took on the identity of Russell Westbrook which was they had a very high ceiling if they were going to go well. And they had, obviously, a very disappointing floor based on the talent they had, whether it was Russ and PG or Russ and PG and Mello or, you know, just the solo Russ show or whatever it was. This is obviously the post-KD years. And now I feel like they're kind of the opposite. I think that team has a pretty high floor. I don't feel like that team is going to disappoint in the playoffs. I think they're going to come out and I think they're going to play – well in the playoffs but I don't think their ceiling is outrageous like I would be really surprised if they somehow went to the finals you know as well coached as they are I just don't think they're necessarily there uh I you know it, it's that the the previous Thunder House had 20 foot ceilings between the floor and the uh and the ceiling and, and now we're seeing something in in house you you gotta you gotta walk on your your hands and knees in order to get in order to fit in there you know yeah, no, this team's always going to be very competent, and they're always going to be a tough out. But I agree with you. Like, I'd be surprised if they won three straight series of seven games, right? I mean, like, I, Robertson, you bring up Robertson. Robertson's a huge X factor for them. Yeah. When Andre Robertson got hurt two and a half years ago, that that dude was, at worst, one of the three or four best perimeter defenders in the league. Absolutely right. right. At, yeah. at worst, he, there was an intelligent person could make a legitimate argument that he was literally the single best perimeter defender in the NBA, and I would have no problem with it. In he, fact, I think I remember Michael Pina doing so. He, yes, I remember that story from Pina. Uh, I said an intelligent person. No, I kid. I love Pina. Pina's uh, just on this podcast. We love Mike. Oh, Pina's amazing. I worked with Pina at Fox Sports. That dude is one of the hardest workers I've ever seen in my life. It's insanity. It's infuriating because he makes everybody else look bad because he outworks everyone. But he's uh, he's he's great. He's uh, he's awesome. Uh, but for Robertson, like that, he was an unbelievable perimeter defender. Now, part of that is based on quickness and just general athleticism. Part of it is that he's incredibly smart. I mean, he is an unbelievable scout. Stud- studies film and other players' tendencies to a degree that most players just don't do. So he can tell you the 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 very delicate intricacies of every single opposing player's um, tendencies and where they want to go and 
the way they do their little in and out dribbles or whatever moves they might have, you know, he can he can anticipate so well because of that, and he can react when it gets tricked so well because of that too. On the rare occasions that happens, so I think he'll still be good defensively, even if his movement isn't what it used to be. I think he's looked pretty good so far, honestly. Uh, yeah. The question is. Is he going to make his shots? And the other thing that I wonder is right now they have him coming off the bench. But he's never made much sense as a bench player to me, to be honest. I feel like he's one of those guys that even if he's not one of your five best players, he just makes more sense starting because his value as a defensive stopper is is really only if he's going to guard someone who needs to be defensively stopped. And it's one thing if you're going up against a team like, say, the Clippers and you can guard Lou Williams on the opposing bench unit. But if you're going up against a team that doesn't really have, like, a guy who runs their bench unit who's who really needs to be stopped, then, then is he really providing that? Because in that scenario, the difference between him and an average defender isn't that much. So I'm very curious to see what happens with him now that he's being reinserted into the rotation because uh, I think there are people in OKC who probably feel similarly about that. And they have such a good thing that I don't think they're going to want to shake up their rotations or anything like that because they've had success. But with Schroeder now gone because his his wife just had a kid, um, they've got some opportunities to shake some good things up. And I'm uh, I'm curious on that because that team is interesting. Yeah. With Robertson, I think that the big thing there is like that Billy Donovan has actually done an exceptional job this year of managing his rotation and finding the right matchups. Right. Like even though Andre Robertson, let's say he plays 15 to 20 minutes a night in the playoffs, Billy Donovan, like I trust him right now to find the right 15 to 20 minutes to where he's being utilized defensively properly. Like even if it's okay, we're going to play Robertson from the eight minute mark until the four minute mark in the first quarter. And then the final six minutes of the second quarter when starters are in for the most part, like I I think he'll figure that out. I'm not real concerned about that. Um, yeah, I think that they're really interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, the the real shooting ability... That's a really good point. ...in Shea Gilgis-Alexander have as shot creators. Like, Shea being able to play 36 minutes a night and being able to play the one, two, and the three, what I've been kind of saying with him is that, A, yes, he's an all-star and is, you know, in the future and is an exceptional player, but, like, the versatility long-term that he's going to give Oklahoma City in terms of being able to build their roster in so many different ways. Like, you can play him at the point and then go get a bunch of wings. You can go get a point guard and play him at the two or the three and make it work like that. Like, he's probably best as a two guard, but the ways that Oklahoma City and Sam Presti are going to have to build that roster around him with all of these draft picks I think is going to be really interesting. Um but they're dangerous this year, too. And if you made me bet right now, I think they're going to be probably the four seed in the West. Uh, and they're certainly going to at least get the five seed, I think, because they're playing better than Utah right now. Like, I know Utah beat Memphis, and we'll talk about them uh, maybe next year, uh, because right now Utah and Oklahoma City are playing each other. The Lakers we're not worried about. We didn't really close the loop on them. But I don't think either of us are worried enough about the Lakers to be concerned enough to keep talking about them. Uh Oklahoma City, I think, is playing better than Utah right now. And I am terrified by Utah's offense. I I just don't think that they're doing a good enough job of creating efficient shots. Yesterday against Memphis, 
I mean, Memphis is just so bad at losing shooters, and they have such little defensive continuity because they've had all of these injuries that they've undertaken. Like, Joe Ingles had so many little open shots yesterday that were just, like, off of defensive breakdowns, uh, not even Utah doing anything all that special. Now, like, if Mike Conley plays as well as he did yesterday consistently and if, uh, you know, Ingles plays where he's going to average 18 points a night, let alone the 25 that he scored yesterday. It is a different team offensively because all of those guys, along with Donovan Mitchell, can create shots. But we just haven't seen that from Utah up until playing that Memphis team that I think is just an abomination right now defensively. So do you think Houston passes Utah? Because I'm with you. I'm concerned about Utah. Another thing is with Utah is the turnovers have been bad. Yep. A lot of sloppy turnovers. I think they have the highest turnover rate right now in the four bubble games. And, and I feel like that's something that could keep up. Like, that seems to me, I don't know if they'll be literally the worst turnover team in the league, but they've just been sloppy offensively. Their their actions, their movements, they've just kind of looked off offensively. And, and I've been not all the way out on Utah's offense this year, but it's just, it hasn't looked as good as I thought it would be. And And look, missing Bogdanovich is really big for them. That guy is really good and really important at the four as a secondary creator for them, as a as a really good shooter, as somebody who can basically get a bucket at the end of the shot clock when they need it to sustain their offense. He is he had a really good year and was really valuable for them. And them not having him was a I think a really big loss. It's not like you can just all of a sudden plug right back in and replace Bogdanovich. They don't have the pieces to replace him on the aggregate. He's he's too good for that. So I'm 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 a little concerned about their offense. I, I think it's totally plausible that Utah ends up falling the six and we end up with OKC and Houston in the four or five. Yeah, I think that that is going to happen, to be honest. Uh, Utah is 18th currently in offensive rating uh, in the bubble. They are last in turnover rate which you nailed 100% right. And then they are 18th in effective field goal percentage as well. Uh, In general, true shooting percentage has just been like wildly up uh, across the bubble because uh, as Seth Partnow talked about recently. Fouls. Yeah, the fouls. Wow. The fouls are a disaster. But yeah, they're just not getting nearly enough ball movement. They're not getting nearly enough uh, effective shot creation other than that game against Memphis last night or uh, yesterday afternoon. And I'm just like not convinced based off of that game that this is a team that is going to be ready to go, maybe is the way to put it, Uh, especially once games really start to ramp up in the playoffs. This game tomorrow, I believe it is, against San Antonio, I think it's going to be fascinating because San Antonio, as we talked about last, last show, is playing really well. And... I would not want to play the Spurs right now, even though they lost to Denver. I, I think the Spurs win that game. Uh, maybe not easily, but I think they do beat Utah. And the, the bigger concern I have about Utah is that their defense has not been particularly good, basically in like the calendar 2020 year. Uh, it really just has not been. Like you go back to February, for instance, like it, it was looking pretty ugly in my opinion, the whole time that that was that month was rolling. Uh, you know, I think they finished 26th 
in defensive rating in the month of February. And then, you know, obviously there weren't a crazy amount of games played in March, right? So I, I don't know that it's worth, like, diving deep into those numbers. But, you know, the last full month that they played, the defensive rating number was just terrible. And, and so far they've been very average defensively in the bubble. So whenever you're talking with Utah, a situation where their defense is average, I think it creates just very real identity problems for them. Yeah, that that is very fair. And one of the things with that I struggled with when I was putting together my defensive player of the year ballot is I thought Rudy Gobert was really difficult to evaluate in some ways this year because you look at the individual advanced numbers on him and they're ridiculous. They're as good as ever. And they scream that he's still the most effective defensive player in the NBA. I did not put him winning defensive player of the year. I put Giannis. I ended up putting him third on my ballot. Uh, and you you look at the stuff, you look at the rim protection numbers, you look at everything else, you look at the you know anything from the kind of the all encompassing defensive numbers, the defensive RPM and the wind shares and all those sorts of things, and they're amazing on him. And then and then you watch the way Gobert is playing, and he has his moments where he's you can tell he's he's not all the way there. And look, Rudy Gobert not all the way there is still better than ninety five percent of the league defensively. It's not like he's become some sort of negative in moments. He's just not literally the best defensive player in the league in those particular moments. And the other thing is, Utah had like a has like a one oh seven defensive rating when he's on the floor. Part of part of the thing with Rudy Gobert is you put him on the floor and he is your defense system and he is your defensive effectiveness. And that hasn't been as true this year, you know? Like, I'm trying to be delicate about it because I'm not saying, like, I put him third defensive player in the year. That's an acknowledgement of a great defensive season. It's just a little bit down, and when you depend on one guy as much as the Jazz depend on Gobert, you need that guy to be as great as Gobert was for the Jazz to be as great as they were defensively the last few years, especially in stretches. And I don't think the Jazz defense in general has been as good this year. And it's not just Gobert. Uh, but I don't think it's been as good this year in part because I think Rudy Gobert has been like 95% of what Rudy Gobert was the last two years. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Uh, I think that no one is calling Rudy a bad defender now. It's just that he's gone from the first. No, but I have to speak with nuance because uh, Jazz fans are crazy. And they'll, they'll cancel <laughs> me they'll cancel me if i if i if i don't acknowledge that yes rudy gobert is a great defender he's a phenomenal generational defender all of that's true by the way he's great he's he's actually in some ways underrated because people think of him as just a rim protector and he's quite good at other things defensively other protection i wouldn't have him third if i thought he only protected the rim he's 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 a great defender he just this has not been his best defensive year and i'm I wouldn't at all be surprised if the playoffs came around and he recovered his best defensive version because he still moves well and he's young and, and he's he's a fabulous defender. But just from what he's done this year, it hasn't been quite as Rudy Gobert-like as it was the last two years when I thought he was a deserving defensive player of the year both times. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we're talking about defense in New Orleans and Sacramento right now. It's 30 to 20 uh, through seven minutes in the game. Oh man. It is a, uh, it is an offense show because if we're going to talk about defense, we should never talk about new Orleans again. Because <laughs> that defense is... It's rough, man. It's so rough to watch them on defense and like, man, Zion has all this defensive potential, but he's not there yet. 
No, that's bad. Um, yeah, I think I would pick Houston to pass Utah in the standings. Now, the problem with Houston is they have uh, just a very, 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 very difficult uh, schedule unless uh, unless we think Philadelphia is just terrible, right? Because San Antonio, I think, is probably one of the 15 best teams in the league right now. Indiana is playing like one of the 15 best teams in the league right now. And then they have the Lakers on Thursday, who we still believe are very good. Now they also have Sacramento and, you know, like I said, they have Philadelphia in that last game. So, you know, they're going to be favored in a lot of these games. But I don't know. A lot of these are real toss-ups for Houston, especially with their style of play to where I, I would have some – some concerns uh, about them getting to the five, but I think that they will get there. How how interesting is that Houston-Philadelphia matchup, by the way? Ben Simmons is hurt now, so we'll see if he plays, but how interesting from a basketball contrast perspective is that Houston-Philadelphia game? It's ridiculous. Le- it's an absurd basketball game because one of these teams in Philadelphia at one point was like the most modern in terms of team building and then decided to go super big when Elton Brand took over. Uh, And then in Houston, it's just super small. Like we went from Daryl Morey protege and Sam Presti with Philadelphia uh, to Elton Brand doing something totally different. And now they're playing in that last game of the season, Daryl Morey and the team he's built in Houston, which is everything that we think about with modern basketball now. It also might be meaningless too. Either team could just be locked in and could rest their guys. I'm telling you, man, I think that this last, these like seeding games in the Western Conference, this is why we're talking about it. Like, I think this, these games are going down to the last second because other than Dallas, which we'll talk about in a minute here, I think Dallas is going to be the seventh seed, like you said. But I mean, four, five, and six, there's a half game within those two right now. LA and Denver, there's a half game within those two right now. Like, it, it is, it's going to be a battle the whole way, I think. Yeah, that is um, that is plausible. I mean, it's super close right now. Are all are three of those teams tied in the loss column right now? Is that where we're at? I should uh, probably know this. Yes, they are. Uh, all of Utah, Oklahoma City, and Houston are tied in the loss column. But like the loss column also kind of doesn't matter, right? Because that's it's true. Like by winning percentage versus right, they're the going to play a different number of games now. Now, do you think? Do you think any of those teams, Utah, would have the best chance because they're currently two back? But do you think any of those teams could catch Denver? I think probably not. You know, if you would have asked me that before the, like, Thunder game, I probably would have said, yes, I think that they are going to catch them. But the emergence of Michael Porter has been so enormous to Denver to where, like, his last two games he's averaging, like, 29 and 15, right? Like, I don't think he's that good, but he's going to allow them to stem the tide over the course of the next little while. Uh, They play the Blazers today, and I'll be interested to see if they play Jokic. I think that they probably will, if only because they do want to try and catch the Clippers, because I would much rather... That's actually a good question. Would you rather play Utah or Dallas in the playoffs right now, if you're the two seed or the three seed? I think it probably depends a little bit on matchups, but I think I'd rather play Dallas. I think I would I think rather, I'd rather play, play Dallas. Right now really? So I and we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's talk about Denver before we I do would, that. Okay, let's talk about Denver. Let's talk yeah. about Denver. Denver has been 
so good offensively because Nikola Jokic just remains so good offensively. Like Greg Popovich, I saw some people like kind of clowning him on Twitter yesterday because uh, he said that Nikola Jokic is like the reincarnation of Larry Bird. And look, like I don't think Jokic is as good as Larry Bird, but I totally get what he's saying when he says that. Just the ability to dominate the game. Uh, through his passing and through his shooting and, and through just being stronger than guys and being able to post and being able to see the court. Like, it's – I get where he's going with it. He just so thoroughly dominates the offense and creates efficient offense as a hub, standing still all to himself, that it's just so, so hard to beat Denver. I don't care about anybody getting clowned on Twitter for a Larry Bird take. Let me ask you a question. How many people do you think tweeting about that, not even were old enough to see Larry Bird play in his prime, but just were alive when Larry Bird was a professional NBA player? Hmm. Good question. Less than 50%. I don't know. I'm going to say probably a little bit more than 50%, but because uh, a lot of a lot of the people I saw it from were like the older people who did see Larry Bird, and it's just like, oh my God, this is sacrilege. You're talking about Larry Bird. He's, he's Indiana basketball. He's what he's what basketball is meant to be. And it's just like guys, come on. Like Larry Bird's great. Don't get me wrong. But you know, let's let's chill out because I actually understand it from he, a style. He was very standpoint exactly. People take about. these things. People take these things to mean ability. That Greg Popovich is saying that Nikola Jokic is now a top ten player in the history of the game. He stylistically, he's talking about the way that he plays and carries a team stylistically. And the way a guy that tall at that position shouldn't be able to pass like that. That's not a thing. And he makes similar passes to Larry Bird. I've thought about it because every time he makes one of those when he's in the high post, and and, and you'll see it every however many games, when he's in the high post and somebody back cuts, yep. and he throws that no look over the head pass, that's a Larry Bird pass. Yeah. How many times have you seen that insane Larry Bird highlight? Larry Bird is, was an outrageous passer in those scenarios, those those crazy over-the-head passes. Larry Bird threw over-the-head bounce passes, which is the most insane thing I've ever heard. Or like uh, behind-the-back, like twisting bounce passes that he throws, like mm-hmm. cutters off the post. It's, he, Jokic is so ridiculous. He's Well, so, he's very creative. Like, I, yeah. I bet you I don't know Jokic personally. I don't know Larry Bird personally. I bet you they have similar minds like I bet you they talk about the game similarly because they clearly see the game similarly in terms of the way they read and the way they pass and that kind of stuff and a lot of the time those two things tend to uh tend to overlap so so I see it even if I didn't see it who the hell am I to clown Greg Popovich about a player comp and here's the other thing about you know the pairing now with Michael Porter that's one thing that Michael Porter is very good at is cutting and finding the right timing on cuts like Nikola Jokic, over the next five years of Michael Porter's career, is going to create so many points for him. And Porter, by the way, is creating these points by cutting himself as well. But Jokic is going to find him on that cut every single time, and it's going to create so many easy buckets for Porter. Like, Michael Porter, man, I mean, (laughs) the guy's going to get canceled once every, you know, five weeks, it seems like, for something dumbass that he says. And... (laughs) You know, like, we, we can talk about the fact that uh, on the court he hasn't found a shot that he doesn't like yet, but off the court he dislikes every shot. But 
I mean, the guy can play basketball. He's an unbelievable scorer uh, of the ball and just has that instinct in terms of how to get to his shot in an efficient way. He's got unbelievable instinct. It's uh, it's incredible to watch him play. And the fact that he has these instincts, you know, people talk about him as like he's a rookie and he has such little NBA experience. And he's even a rookie who's played very low minutes. I mean, he had played, I think, 670 minutes coming into the bubble. Right. With I mean, that was I think that was the number because I, I left him off of my all-rookie team. And I felt bad about it. I felt like a hypocrite because I put Zion on at 565 minutes. And I left MPJ off at 670. And I, I somebody wants to disagree with me on that and call me a hypocrite, that's okay. I can live with that. Uh, but he's an unbelievable talent and has such incredible instincts for a guy who has played 670 NBA minutes. And it's not like he was playing a ton before that. I mean, he played two or three college games. So he hasn't really played at an incredibly high level at all. The fact that we knew about the talent, we knew about the silky shooting ability, we knew about his his physical abilities, but the fact that he has these sort of basketball instincts, and it seems to just be inherent in the way that he plays the game, it's not a thing that he's learned over experience, makes me think like, whoa, what's he going to look like when he's polished? This is unpolished Michael Porter Jr., you know? Yeah. What's he going to look like when he gets there? Yeah, and the thing with that, too, is we haven't really seen a ton of, like, the pull-up game yet from Porter, and it's there. Like, I'll just tell you. Like, it's it's there uh, from having watched him play in high school. He still obviously has to polish it at the NBA level because NBA-level defenders will cause him issues, but he has it in his bag. He, he's going to be really good, man. He is it, – it's a – it's a perfect situation for him to thrive because it's next to Nikola Jokic. Um, and it's next to a Jamal Murray. And, uh, you know, Will Barton is a pretty good playmaker for others. Like, these guys are just going to find him uh, when he makes these smart off-ball cuts uh, and makes these uh, – like, he's a really good offensive rebounder as well. I, I think that that kind of goes underrated too. Like, he has these great instincts and uh, really great timing for going up to, you know, high point the ball. Uh, as an aggressive offensive rebounder. So I, I don't even know that like I'm happy that someone who is this like brazenly uh, counterproductive uh, in his public statements is going to be good, but I mean, he, he's going to be unbelievable, man. Like that guy is going to be uh, just, he's going to make all-star games. I think I really do. As long as he oh. stays healthy. Oh yeah. I, he's going to make all-star games as long as he stays healthy. Sounds like a very conservative statement for him. Like he could, I wouldn't be surprised. Or let me ask you this. What would you set the over under on all NBAs for him right now? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the forward position. If is I, obviously if I set hardest. it at, if I set it at one and a half, what would you take? I think I'd probably still take the under because of injury concerns, but and because the forward position is the hardest position to make all NBA, um, you know, right now we have LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Kawhi Leonard, Pascal Siakam, Jason Tatum's going to be in that mix. Um, you know, Chris Jimmy Wilson Butler is there. Jimmy Butler is there. Like that, uh, Luka Doncic at some point is probably going to be there. There's a case that Anthony Davis should be a forward, given the fact that he plays power forward 
for the Lakers as opposed to the center position, which is his more natural position in my opinion. So like the forward position is so loaded and he has enough injury issues to where I probably would just take the under on that as a conservative bet. But the talent and the ceiling is certainly there for him to for you to say over. Yeah, to me it's just going to come down to injuries. It's just going to come down to injuries with him. If he stays healthy, he is he's going to be able to do everything. And and he's a great fit with the other guys that I have on that roster. Like that that team is going to be yeah. that team is going to be scary if he's able to stay on the court. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh and by the way, this is a Denver team that has kind of stemmed the tide uh with Oklahoma City and uh San Antonio like beating two teams that are playing really well right now. Uh, without Jamal Murray, without Will Barton, without Gary Harris, when they get those guys back and still have this version of Michael Porter and have Jeremy Grant, man, this is going to be a good team. This is going to be a really good team. Yes, it is. I have a question for you. You're the prospect expert. I don't know the answer to this question. Is Bull Bull real? I was very low on Bull coming in. Uh, I get the talent, but I, I think that there are enough questions about how he functions within a defense as a center that I don't know that I would feel wildly confident in him becoming anything more than like an interesting backup center. Yeah. Like he he was really terrible defensively in all of those games that people were excited about. Yeah. And he's easy to push around. Yeah. I'm, I don't have an opinion yet. I don't have an opinion yet, but I'm, I'm very interested yeah, the, the talent is tantalizing in a lot of ways. I, I totally get being excited about Bull Bull, but yeah, I mean, I I don't want to be accused of being a hater here. I just think that there are enough questions about his game to where I have concerns. Like, he's starting at such a low level defensively at the premium defensive position in the NBA that I, I think that there is real reason to have worry. I get it. It's a good, um, it's a good reason. Let's, uh, let's move to, I guess we didn't talk a ton about Houston. I mean, what have you thought of Houston so far in the bubble? Because they're, they're kind of the most uh, interesting team in terms of style and how that matches up with other great teams in the playoffs is just going to be so interesting to me. You know, it's weird. I actually think they're really easy to figure out. They're, their volatility is so consistent that I kind of think they're easy to figure out. You know what I mean? Like, I mentioned this when I was talking about the difference in identities with the Thunder. Russell Westbrook teams tend to take on this identity. They have moments where they look awesome, and they have moments where they don't look awesome. And I think they're, that's just kind of what they're going to be. They could certainly win a playoff series. I I don't see them dealing with Anthony Davis at the five. JaVale McGee, I think, has become a good player. I don't see them dealing with Dwight Howard and those bench units well. I love what P.J. Tucker does, and I think he's an excellent defender, and I think he does a great job playing the five, and I think Covington has been awesome for them. But I I don't see them going up against a team like that or a team like the Clippers and faring well because those teams have size and they have the ability to spread. Anthony Davis can can play on the perimeter, he can create, and he can score down low. And when you have someone like Clint Capella, like Houston did, you have to choose an either-or. Clint Capella is best around the rim, and Russell Westbrook is also best around the rim. 
Yep. And if you want to maximize Russell Westbrook, then put out somebody instead of someone who's best around the rim next to him, put out somebody who's best on the perimeter, and then you don't have somebody blocking Russell Westbrook going to the rim. So you have to choose an either or. And, and I think uh, even like, you know, if they end up going against a team like the Lakers, then the Lakers didn't have to choose an either or. They just didn't really have to do that. So so I think I think they will end up, they could win a playoff series depending on who they play. I would pick them over Utah. I think they would beat Utah. I could see, I think, Rudy Gobert going up against that team would be a fascinating thing to watch. I think Steven Adams going up against that team would be a fascinating thing to watch. I think they could beat Oklahoma City in that sense because I think it could they could plausibly... Steven Adams, to me, is a kind of guy who I think they could potentially play off the floor. I don't think he's as good on the perimeter and on switches as he was four years ago. I'm telling uh, you, man, I, I think he's looked really good so far in the bubble. Well, now, he got hurt last night, like we said earlier, but, like, he has looked as mobile, in my opinion, as he was earlier, very early in his career. That's fair. He has looked good. You know, the interesting thing with Adams is that he always wears down throughout a season. Yeah. He is always worse in April than he is in October. And so maybe the bubble was made for a guy like Steven Adams, who just, he's people call him indestructible, but in reality, he's like, He's like 80% of what he was every year at the end of the year because he takes so many hits and plays through so – he plays so physically and he, his body just kind of falls apart throughout the year and then he, he, he uh, you know, resurrects himself heading into the next season. And, and maybe this bubble will help that. I mean, you say he looks great. Well, he's had a whole offseason off, right? So this is kind of his, his restart. So maybe that will help somebody like him. I mean, I think him versus Houston would be really, really, really interesting. Uh, I'm – I'm curious to see if Houston goes up against a team like that, how they end up going. But I, I don't see them beating either of the LA teams. And I could see them I could see them losing a first round series if things go wrong. Like do you how would you let's say you're one of the big teams. Pick pick one of the teams that plays a big conventional center of like Denver or Oklahoma City well, to me, or, or Utah. The most interesting one has been the Lakers because they do really like to play JaVale and Dwight. Now, they uh-huh. have the ability to go small, but and they have been doing that a little bit more throughout the bubble so far, uh, at least anecdotally from watching their games. It feels like they're a little bit more willing to go small. Uh, by the way, Sacramento has 55 points in 14 minutes in this game. It's fucking hilarious. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, Yo, that New Orleans defense, man. The Lakers, uh, they're decision-making in terms of do they play big and do what brought them there or do they play to the Rockets, I think is really interesting. I bet you that we're going to see the Lakers go smaller more often throughout the bubble uh, as they try to get this offense going now because I do think that one thing that is undeniable is that the offense does work better with Anthony Davis at the five. And when you match that against the Houston team – I think that that is when Houston would have problems. If you match Houston against Nikola Jokic, I think Jokic would just demolish them because they, they just don't have anyone. You, you have to be able to stop Jokic from getting to the spots he wants to on the court. That's kind of why I think someone like Jakob Pertl does a really good job is that while Pertl is skinny, he tends to run the floor really well and beat Jokic to where he wants to go and then uses his athleticism to uh, – just kind of move around the court and maneuver around Jokic to make it harder to get him the ball in those advantageous positions. Um, 
Houston doesn't have that. Like, Robert Covington can't do that. P.J. Tucker, if you look at the numbers uh, against P.J. Tucker from Jokic, it's just like a bloodbath, typically. So I think that Denver would wreck Houston. Um, Oklahoma City would be a little bit more interesting. Utah, I think, for a similar reason, would be a little bit more interesting. But I think Houston would beat both of those teams, to be honest. Even with how Oklahoma City is playing and even with uh, Utah, I just think that Houston, you know, has kind of figured out the Utah problem. Yeah, well, I've I've just assumed all season that, like, the Anthony Davis doesn't want to play center thing was just a regular season thing. And then when you get to a point where you really have to win and playing small matters more, and also sustaining his body isn't important because it's shorter bursts and shorter amounts of time, then then you're going to see JaVale and or Dwight end up getting fewer minutes, and, and AD is going to end up sliding over to the five for the majority of his minutes. I, I think I've assumed all season that we're going to see that happen once the playoffs start. That's not an unconventional thing for guys who hate playing down a position. You know, right. we would see that. We'd, we'd see that with, with tons, tons of guys, especially guys with injury histories where you just limit their amount of time playing down a position. Cause it's more physical there during the regular season, especially when you know you're going to be a really good team. And then you, uh, and then you just make it happen more in the postseason. You know, seen that with guys like LeBron when he didn't want to play the four, or Melo when he didn't want to play the four, or LaMarcus Aldridge when he didn't want to play the five. We'd see that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, AD is kind of a guy of a previous – remember six years ago, five years ago, maybe even more recently, when guys just used to hate playing a position now, a down. Now everybody does it. AD is of that generation, so you kind of have to grease it more. But I, I think that's going to happen. And, yeah, he's the kind of guy who – AD guarding the perimeter is no problem. I don't no, care about not. AD guarding PJ Tucker. That's good on me. That's not going to be an issue. So spreading them out on the other side of the floor is not something you can necessarily do when AD is at the five, you know? And LeBron has been really good defensively this year. I'm not so worried about that Lakers defense guarding Houston. And I think AD could, he's a guy who could pulverize them on the other side too. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Uh, the last team that, we have here is Dallas that we haven't talked about. Oh, we haven't talked about the Clippers yet either, and we'll do that. Uh, we'll save them for last because uh, you are well known for having written about the, Clip- the Clippers for a long time. So Dallas, I think it's just interesting because the offense has been uh, everything that we thought it would be for the first 45 minutes of nights, and then uh, it just totally falls apart late, and that's been a consistent theme throughout the course of the year. I don't really know what to make of that yet. Do you have any idea what to make of the fact that Dallas's late game offense just continues to be a total nightmare? It's so weird. What's their crunch time offensive efficiency right now? Like it's horrendous. I, I don't have Are the they... number in front of me. I can pull it up real quick, but like it's bad. <laughs> I mean, we can just we can just call it bad. Uh, throughout the, the last time, the, the last time I checked, the last time I checked, they, they're obviously number one in the league in offensive efficiency. And the last time I checked, they were bottom five and. Clutch time offensive efficiency, which is a game within five with five or fewer minutes to go. So, yeah. Which is a wild juxtaposition. They're 26th in effective field goal percentage uh, in those late game scenarios. They are 28th in offensive efficiency in those clutch late game scenarios. Uh, it's crazy to me. They're 95.6 offensive rating. Uh, they are only above Detroit and New Orleans. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. And to be honest, I haven't I haven't looked into that enough to see what the numbers bear out in terms of their shot selection, in terms of their offensive process. But that 
that is unbe- that that is un- unbelievable juxtaposition from the team that has the best offensive efficiency in the history of NBA.com, keeping track of per possession stats. Yeah, no, it it's makes craziness. No sense. Um, they have the best offensive efficiency, I believe, in like basketball reference history as well, uh, which goes back like much farther. This this is ridiculous. Like it. it I, I don't really understand why part of me wants to say they've only played 147 minutes of crunch time this year. So, like, maybe there's just something funky going on. Uh, but they've also played that over the course of 38 games, which isn't really that small of a sample size either. So, yeah, it, it's cost them two games so far. Like, that Houston game, they should have beaten Houston, unquestionably. Phoenix... I mean, <laughs> Phoenix, I don't understand how they lost that game. Um, just a total abomination. Luka Doncic goes for 40 points and 11 assists, and they still just can't get it. I know. That Houston game, I couldn't believe they let go of that. I turned I could it not off. Believe they I'll let be go honest. Of that. I turned it off. I was, like, cashing in three out of the four DFS lineups that I put into a tournament. I was like, yeah, I'm fine. We're good. This game's done. There's seven seconds left. They're up three or whatever. Like, we're good. Um, and then fucking Harden, man. Like, I don't it, – it's unbelievable how he, he just had the perfect free throw miss of all time, basically. I, exactly, when he wasn't even trying to miss. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Um yeah, Dallas, I think that their defense is probably just not good enough, and I think that their offense is good enough to scare the shit out of teams. Like, yeah. if they take a team to six or seven games in the first round and that team is worried because Dallas is just shooting the shit out of the ball, I wouldn't be stunned at all. In fact, I kind of expect that because when Dallas has it going, they are kind of unbeatable. Uh, I just don't know that you can do that four times in seven games uh, to the extent that Dallas will need to do it. I also wonder how much of a regular season team they are. Uh, people think of Luka as like the guy who makes everything go for them. And while he is tremendous and makes a lot go for them, they're actually still fantastic offensively when he's not on the floor too. I mean, a lot of this is just the Rick Carlisle machine working wonderfully. And they have a really good bench. And when rotations shorten and tighten in the postseason, you know, they're they're seven right now. They... Let's say they lock into seven. They play the Clippers. Well, the Clippers have a pretty darn good bench, too. All right, now you're going up against the Clippers bench. Is 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 Dallas, who depended all season, essentially, on their bench just outscoring the opponent, is the Dallas bench going to outscore the Clippers bench? I don't know. And if they don't win those bench units, how are they going to win that series? So yeah, I don't think they do, to be honest. So I, I don't like that matchup for them. Yeah, no, I don't like that matchup for them at all. And I think that matchup could... I think that matchup could make, look, I don't think they would beat Denver. I don't think they would beat Houston or Oklahoma City. But if they played those teams, I think they'd look like a good team that just lost in the first round. And I could see the Clippers making them look worse than I think they actually are because I like their team. They have a good team, but I just don't think that's a good a good matchup for them uh, rotationally or, or even from you know a strengths and weaknesses standpoint. Um, the last team we should talk about here is the Clippers. Uh, what do you make of them so far? They play Dallas today, by the way, so it's funny that we're talking about this uh, in specificity toward that matchup. But they played a tight game against the Lakers, lost. They blew the Pelicans out. They played a tight game against the Suns and lost. And by the way, that shot that Devin Booker hit at the end of the game, he 
took Paul George off the dribble, got a switch. The switch was on to Kawhi. He pump faked Kawhi, turned back over his right shoulder for a fadeaway that was then contested by Paul George, who are two of the 10 best perimeter defenders in the entire NBA. And they still, the ball still went down. Devin Booker making that shot was unbelievable. The difficulty on that shot was outrageous. Outrageous, man. That was incredible. Uh, what do I make of the Clippers? If I, especially assuming if they have Montrezl Harrell, yeah. if I had to pick a team in the West, I think I would pick them. I, I think I would pick them over the Lakers. Too. I agree. Why would you pick them? I am a horrified if, of their defensive wing combination. I am just absolutely horrified of their of their perimeter defense when they ratchet up to playoff capabilities, um, assuming they have their full roster. And they have so many playmakers to complement that. They have so many guys who are able to get buckets for themselves and for others that I think they're just your typical top five defense, top five offense potential champion. And they are built to guard any kind of team in the playoffs. Paul George can guard a million different kinds of guys. Kawhi Leonard can guard a million different kinds of guys. Both of those guys are unbelievable defending the weak side corner. They're going to take away corner threes from you. Beverly can can annoy the hell out of dudes. Um, and they 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 have solid defenders in the back line. Like, Zubats has been really good for them. Um, they, 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 I just think they have so much potential defensively to stifle such unbelievable um, playmaking and shot-making ability on the other end that I just think their roster is, is the most complete one there. And if they don't win, I wouldn't be absolutely shocked. Milwaukee could beat them. The Lakers could beat them. The Raptors could beat them. The Raptors just play gorgeous basketball, man. Like, we talk about the East not being interesting, and I do agree with you. But the Raptors, Raptors might be the most fun team in the league to watch. If you're just like a bas- if you're just a basketball nerd, like, you just want to watch gorgeous. You know what they are? They're, in some ways, they remind me of the 2014 Spurs. They're not as good as the 2014 Spurs. Do you remember how beautiful yep. the 2014 Spurs team played? That was like the ball movement. Those 2013 and 14 Spurs, but specifically 14 when they won the, the title. Uh, remember how beautifully they moved the ball? It was like the ball movement team of like everybody wants to play like the Spurs that inspired all of these teams who want to play with this gorgeous brand of ball movement and cohesion, right? And the Raptors play like that to me on both ends. They are telepathic and how they move, and how they move the ball. And I mean, we talk about, uh, we talked earlier about NBA help defense and having to help in scramble situations. Like, their their whole defensive philosophy, I mean, they, they change their defense 582 times a game, but their whole defensive philosophy is, yeah, we're just going to scramble all the time because it's totally chaotic, and every one of our guys can read the other four guys' minds and know where to be and when to help and how to help every single time. And it's gorgeous. They have, like, five guys you could you could throw on all defense. So it would be fine and justifiable because they play so well together. So I love watching the Raptors play. They could win the title. Any of those teams could beat the Clippers. But if I if I had to pick, I think, I think I'm going... I'm going. I'm going. I'm going with the Clippers on that one. I just. I just think they have the most. Um, they have the most talent and and the most cohesion in their top eight or nine. The I agree with you, and I've been on that boat for a while now. Um, I was in the Westgate Casino and Sportsbook 
with Robbie Calland and Brad Rowland, and we were watching Australian football. Rather, they were watching me watch Australian football. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kawhi Leonard signed with the Clippers while we were there, and it was right as the sports book had closed for the night because it happened like right at midnight, right? And Robbie and Brad and I were just like debating, running up to the sports book and just shouting, Clippers, give us the Clippers odds. We want the Clippers <laughs> odds now. <laughs> and just like making them give us a number <laughs> for it and just like putting down money. Like I've been on the Clippers boat since then. Like they've been my pick, I feel like, the whole way. I still feel that way. The one thing that worries me is they don't really create easy shots. Um, Part of that is because they've built their roster around Kawhi Leonard and Paul George being the tough shot makers that you need to win in the playoffs. But they also just don't really have guys that break you down off the bounce, force you in to help, and then create scramble situations that lead to open three-pointers. For the most part, it is contested shots, and they have more guys that are good at contested shots than anybody in the league, it seems like. But, man, it's hard sometimes to make a living purely off of contested shots, even though contested shots are at a much higher value and the ability to make them are at a much higher value in the playoffs. Yeah, can can I play the other side of that coin? Please do. There are some teams that I'll look at, too, that are very good at creating open shots, and they're very good at hitting open shots, and they don't have a guy who can hit the contested shot. And what I'll think when I watch that team in the regular season, trying to think about how they might be in the postseason, is, okay, which defense can go up against that team? And let's say that 50% of the time right now, they're taking wide open shots. Which defense can make that 30% of the time? And if that defense makes it 30% of the time, how's this offense going to react? The Clippers are going to react by Paul George and Kawhi Leonard still scoring efficiently and scoring efficiently for the rest of their offense. There are other offenses that might not react as well as that. So I think there are two sides to that coin. Yep. Uh, and and to me, I agree with you. Like They, they could use a, a point guard or at least a, a point guard type. Basically, they could use a Lou Williams who doesn't kill you defensively. Right, uh, and and I'm sure Lou will will end up getting minutes with them for with those guys for for that particular reason, right? Uh, but I think that's an okay flaw to have if you still have these guys who are unbelievable at creating creating buckets. And I think Kawhi Leonard has has done a, a good job as a passer this year uh, compared to what he was previously in his career. Like I think he's an evolved passer now. And I think that's yep. something that that helps their offense too. So, so I um, I'm with you. Totally fair criticism, but but if it were the other way around, I think you could you could say a similar type of thing. You know, I mean that's kind of what we were saying with Dallas, isn't it? Hundred percent. So yeah, no, like I said, I, I'm with you on the Clippers. I, I think that they are my pick still, but that's just like a small concern. I have. And then also, like, what are they going to do with the center position? Like, are they going to play Zubats late in games? Are they going to play Harrell? How matchup dependent is it going to be? Like, I, they, they have, or are they going to go small at times with, like, Jermichael Green and Marcus Morris at the five, right? Like, I, I don't love what I've seen from Marcus Morris. He was good uh, against Phoenix, which is a really big boon for them. But, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm 10% worried about Clippers if I had to put a number on it. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I don't think they're any sort of slam dunk. Yeah. They're very um, good. 
They're very good. I this is not a this is not a Kevin Durant Warriors situation. How uh how are you enjoying the Rangers playing in the playoffs, Fred? Dude, I could not tell you the first thing about that team. Good <laughs> you could have, not tell you the first thing. You have made the right move, not caring about <laughs> hockey again. Because Oh my god, could couldn't tell you anything about that team. Hockey is a cesspool of sadness. Uh, especially when you're playing a great goaltender like Carey Price, uh, like the Penguins are right now. Uh, I've already started talking about how the Penguins are going to win the lottery uh, and draft Alexis Lafreniere. So, yeah, no, that, that's where I'm at in my hockey fandom. Uh, my friends and I are really trying to trying to manage ways for the Penguins to get better in the offseason. Despite the fact oh, man, that I'm just, sitting, I'm just sitting around watching baseball and rooting really hard for the Yankees until – this thing all goes to crap and goes away any day now. See, but the problem is I can't even do that because the Pirates are literally the worst team I've ever watched play baseball in my life. (laughs) Yeah, see, the Yankees, what's so upset about this season, even if Major League Baseball somehow finds a way to finish this thing, it's not legit. It's a 60-game season in which tons of teams are having to take hiatuses because they're having too many cases on their team. I'm sure something like that is going to happen if they get to the playoffs. I'm sure something like that is going to happen in the postseason because how could it not? Look at the country that we're living in. How could it not happen? There's a reason it's happened with multiple teams already. It will continue to happen. Uh, And so that's going to delegitimize your postseason if a 60-game season doesn't already delegitimize your postseason. And the Yankees are awesome. And uh, even if they have the best winning percentage in the history of the league and just run through the postseason and kill everybody, it's not a legitimate championship. This isn't a legitimate season, so it's just very upsetting to me. (laughs) I can't enjoy it as much, but I still love baseball so – I love baseball. I love baseball so much that I still sit there and have every single game on. The only reason I'm considering this a legitimate season is because – it has to be legitimate for the Pirates to get the number one overall pick next year. <laughs> there you go. That's that's where I'm at. Uh, Fred, tell the people what you've got coming up on The Athletic. Tell the people where they can find your work on social media. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter, at Fred Katz. Uh, just subscribe to The Athletic DC if you want. You can get 40% off on an athletic subscription. If you go to the athletic.com slash Wizards After Dark, you can subscribe to Wizards After Dark, which is my Wizards podcast. Um, I promise it's not as seedy as it sounds. And uh, No, it is. It is. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true, but I have to lie to get people in the front door, and then once they get there, they're like, what is this horror show? No, there, there's uh, literal there's literal magic happening after midnight, uh, which never <laughs> happens. And then, uh, and that's it. Yeah, you can just follow if you're, if you're super interested in what the Wizards are going to be next year with John Wall and Bradley Beal and maybe a re-signed Davis Bertans or whatever else they have. Uh, you can check out my work on The Athletic DC or subscribe to the podcast, and that's about it. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, whatever Android app. People use Google Podcasts, I got told today. Shout out to all those people. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Uh, This week I did a big thing on the NBA Draft's early entrance, and then coming up uh, tomorrow I've got the big College Coaches Poll series on Anthony Edwards, which is uh, fun. It's, it's a beautiful piece of work that involves the quote, man, Tom Crean let that motherfucker rock out. 
which is one of the best quotes I think I've gotten in a while about a player. So keep it locked at The Athletic for that. We will be back next week with some uh, more on the NBA's bubble and some more on uh, prospect interviews as well, because I've got a couple planned for next week as well. So until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you.